also lost someone. Not a husband, though. Um, a daughter. Leukemia. God, I'm sorry. In a way, it's two bereavements. My beautiful girl. And the person I once was. Welcome to episode five of An Invitation to the Invitation, a limited chronological deep dive of the 2015 suspense drama written by Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi and directed by Karin Kasama. I'm your host, Jim Panola. On this show, I start by reading a scene or scenes from the original script, followed by an analysis of those scenes, subsequently discussing the differences between the screenplay and the final cut of the film ideally shedding light on all the unique components that contribute to the movie and how each of those elements fit into the greater thematic ideas of the story. Let's begin with a reading of pages 26 through 30, picking up directly after the main character, Will, has been dismissed to grab firewood after a contentious interaction with David, his host for the evening. As we follow Will out through the living room, we see Kira in the background, with Kira. She watches Will, pensive as he goes outside, a hand on her shoulder. It's Eden. Has he been acting like this a lot? So agitated? She looks at Eden, measuring her, before deciding how to respond. Sometimes, Will moves further down the hallway toward a closed door. I'm sorry, but it's really good he has you. It comforts me. I know he wants the best for you, too. Will puts his hand on it. He cannot bear to open it. I'm glad you're here tonight, Kira. I think it's important. Will walks away down the hall to the door leading outside. Exterior back patio, backyard. Will opens the door and walks out into the night air. He can hear the muted sound of loud music echoing up the canyon from another party. He takes a breath. Can I ask you something? How has he been handling things? He can be self-destructive. I think he's doing the best he can. Eden, I'm not really comfortable having this conversation, okay? Oh, I was just asking. I feel connected to you. He walks slowly around the pool. In the distance, the lights of the city spread out before him. The lit-up homes of the canyon hang near on both sides. And I just worry about him, how he's dealing with things. You wonder. On the other side of the pool, the yard extends out a good 50 feet before dropping off into the night. Will looks across the grass, unwilling to step out onto it, as if something is out there. Sounds intrude, sounds from the past, sounds of panic and chaos. A screaming rises. Will stares at the spot in the grass. Behind him, a light goes on. We see Eden silhouetted in a window. Will turns, watching her through the wall of glass. Her bedroom is lit up like a diorama. Eden moves around the bed, pulling something out of her pocket. She is obscured for a few moments. Hiding something? When she comes back into view, her hands are empty. She leaves the room. The light goes off. 
Will turns back toward the still open door. He takes several logs off the pile, puts them in the carrier, and takes them inside. Interior living room, continuous. Will moves back up the hallway. The door to Eden's bedroom is closed. We see everyone in the living room, wrapped up in their own conversations. Unseen, Will puts the firewood carrier down in the hall and walks towards Eden's bedroom. Interior bedroom, continuous. Will looks around, looks at the bedside table. He knows that he's wrong. He can't help himself. Finally, in Eden's bedside table, carefully placed in the back of the drawer, Will finds it. A quarter full bottle of pills. The bottle is unlabeled. Will studies this. He plucks out one of the pills and puts it in his pocket. Then he carefully puts things back in order. He walks toward the door, and David appears in it. David stands there, blocking his way. The two men look at each other. David with a smile on his face. Will caught red-handed. David keeps smiling, but says nothing. He walks past Will and deadbolts the door to the outside. He passes Will on the way back. Come back to us when you're ready. Will watches him walk away, turn the corner into the hallway. Thinks about following, but seems stuck there. He takes a breath, notices the bathroom. Interior bathroom, same. His eyes falling on the tub, on Will's face. The sound of voices, gentle splashing. The camera moves around Will, back to the tub, to find Will and Eden in there together years ago. Eden relaxes against Will, looking content and warm. They feel to us like completely different people. Will fishes a washcloth from the bottom of the tub. He starts to wash Eden's chest with a goofy look of concentration. She laughs. You're very dirty there. Really? Yes, attention to detail is incredibly important. He continues washing her, making her laugh even harder. It is my credo. It's your credo. Suddenly another voice can be heard. Will and Eden stop. Look up. Ty, their son, is peeking through a crack in the door. He's giggling. Why don't you go back to bed, buddy? We'll be quieter. The boy looks at them as if doing a mathematical problem in his head. Then he turns and leaves. So that'll be the time he saw his gross parents having sex. We are gross. A pause. Do you think he needs a brother? Will smiles. He could probably use one. She turns, looks back at him. They kiss. She rolls over to face him. A loud scream. First off, apologies for the cliffhanger, but it was too perfect not to do. As per usual, let's start by addressing the quote at the top of the episode and pay attention to how it pertains to these five pages of the script specifically. I also lost someone. Not a husband, though. Um, a daughter. Leukemia. God, I'm sorry. In a way, it's two bereavements. My beautiful girl and the person I once was. If you don't recognize those words, they're written by Alex Garland from his film adaptation of the novel 
Annihilation by author Jeff Vandermeer. Whereas Garland's film zeroes in on the nature of self-destruction and the insidious ways we foster it, this quiet and beautiful scene is perhaps the only one that discusses grief directly. But it does so in quick and cutting fashion that relates to the invitation and today's scene very nicely. The person I once was. I think a lot of us, if not all of us, can relate to this kind of melancholy introspection. The ways we shed old skin like a snake or relinquish an old shell for a new one like a hermit crab, whatever your metaphor of choice might be. Sometimes it's very intentional and deliberate, and other times it seems to be forced upon us. Maybe we physically move from one city to another. Maybe a relationship ends. Maybe we are thrust into mourning. Maybe it's all three of these things and more. There's really no limit to the ways our lives or the forces of our lives can rip us from comfort. There's a surreal quality to reflecting on our past and its harsh juxtaposition with our present. That past might only be weeks or months old, but despite that relatively close proximity, it can feel like a lifetime ago or like a different life altogether lived by someone else entirely simply due to the intense difference in emotional circumstances. All of which is to say we're constantly creating ourselves in the moment, whether we know it or not. And that creation can be ruefully informed by our past with dead-end rumination, or it can be created from nothing, with no baggage, with a firm, forward-facing gaze. These are extremes, but it helps establish the character of Will and where he's at. This is his constant and immediate dilemma. He's experiencing the anguish of transit, of being between states. He is stuck inside trauma and healing. He's putting the effort into his current relationships by being with Kira, by showing up, by making amends with his closest friends, but he's doing so with the grip of post-trauma wrapped around his limbs. It's his tragic dichotomy. He's simultaneously frail and stubborn. The interplay and perverse momentum of these traits barely sustaining him, at least for now which is why he's almost unrecognizable in today's flashback sequence. The fragile, confrontational attitude we've grown accustomed to is now completely absent, replaced with a joyful confidence and contentment. What I love about the use of flashback here and in the movie as a whole is that the flashbacks are not merely a contrived device used for exposition. They play out directly in front of Will, they're almost the literal projection of his mind's eye because we see his instant reaction to it. Stylistically, it's very cleverly and organically portrayed. Narratively, it burrows us, the audience, even further into his point of view, strengthening our empathic tether to him so that we feel his sadness when he remembers his son or we feel his maddening distrust when he sees his hosts acting suspicious. Even if you were to watch the film on mute, you'd be struck by today's scene, by witnessing Will's old self, with his hair shorter and slicked back, and most notably his face completely clean-shaven. He simply looks like a different person, but the effect doesn't fully sink in until we start to observe his body language and listen to his voice. 
the unhesitant warmth he expresses for his wife with his arms wrapped around her in the bath, his calm baritone joking and flirting. Internally, Will is completely different. As Karin Kasama says, he was a lighter person once, and giving the audience a tangible sense of that lighter person makes a huge difference because now for the first time, we see and experience the Will that his friends long for and miss. Finally, we really understand with our own senses, our own eyes and ears, that he was not always on the defensive, shunning and alienating others. Now we see why he's been so somber and recessive. It's because Ty, Will and Eden's son, doesn't exist anymore. Maybe without fully realizing it, their son was the vital adhesive to their family. Like the guiding quote from Annihilation, the tragedy of Ty's death bred its own separate and awful tragedy, the dissolution of Will and Eden, which is tragic because the impact of Ty's death was so great that not even a genuinely strong marriage could weather it. The effect was so corrosive that Will and Eden barely stayed in touch after they separated. But how can any couple know how they'd react to such an unthinkable loss until it happens? In today's flashback sequence, Will and Eden appropriately shoo Ty away the best they can, given the circumstances. It's not the most flattering parent-child portrait, but that's kind of the point. The moment between the three of them is meant to be normal, realistic, and mundane, a snapshot from their old life. Like I believe I mentioned in a previous episode, it's the kind of unremarkable memory that illustrates the extinction of normalcy and shared joy from their present. Of course, it's played for maximum effect. Notably absent from the script is what I can only assume is either an ad lib or a line written on set when Will says to his son, I love you. It might seem like a throwaway line, but the fact that Will still sincerely offers that sentiment when he could have just tried to get his son out of the room as soon as possible speaks volumes. It shows an affection that's omnipresent even in the most awkward of scenarios. Ultimately, it simply shows how much this father regularly verbalized his love for his son. Will and Eden were clearly in a loving, healthy relationship, and the same could be said about their relationship with Ty. Even in Will's lighter exchanges of the present evening, like when he's with Ben, for example, he still seems drained of life. But he especially does now when compared to this not-so-distant past self. In fact, I would argue that this sequence has the single most brutal cut in the whole film. I mentioned earlier how clever the flashbacks are in The Invitation, and that's due in no small part to the editing by Plummy Tucker. We see present Will step into the doorway of his old bathroom, stopping like he sees something. Cut to his past self in the bath with Eden. The scene plays out uninterrupted, allowing us to get lost in it and forget how we were introduced to the moment to begin with. Then, after becoming embedded in the playful, loving atmosphere, the film cuts abruptly to a close-up of a silhouetted present-day Will. Long, shaggy hair, beard, face shrouded in darkness, alone, staring into the void of his own past. It's both devastating and devastatingly effective. It's the very raw power of editing that can nail an emotion through simple timing and juxtaposition of images. 
If you haven't seen the movie in a while or don't remember this particular detail, I highly encourage you to seek it out. The invitation has more than a couple breathtaking moments that are non-verbal and visually driven like this, but this might, might be my favorite example because it raises the contrast between past and present tense fully into the foreground. That contrast is crucial. It only needs one scene and thankfully it only gets one because it leaves a lasting impact that will inform and deepen Will's ambiguous behavior from here on out. We will carry the knowledge of his two opposing selves from now until the credits roll. Somewhat paradoxically, Will is both protagonist and antagonist. Said another way, the invitation is very much a man versus self story, even taking into consideration Will's numerous spats with his friends and acquaintances, which will only escalate, and even taking into account how the emotional violence turns very physical. That's what's so great about Will's internal flashback in the bathroom. The central conflict is playing out organically and explicitly, i.e. current Will observing past Will, without drawing too much attention to itself or being self-congratulatory. It seems benign because there's no outright rage, rejection, or collision between the two. There's only the silent devastation of loss, of somehow having to reconcile that you are no longer the lighter, happier, or more optimistic you. That though you are closer to yourself than anyone, you are at a permanent, fixed distance as well, like two identical poles of a magnet pushing each other away. We cannot change our past self, but we can influence our current self, our only self. We often mourn the death of these old selves, yet in a contradictory way we simultaneously wrestle with the remnants, putting us directly in conflict with who we want to be now. It's the fine, brittle line between positive self-reflection and pointless rumination. Looking back on the past can quickly become a messy, non-linear, self-destructive action. But why? Why do we retreat into something we know is painful? I'd argue because it's strangely anchoring. Not healthy, but anchoring. And that we know what happened in our past, and we can take strange comfort in that lack of elasticity unlike the future, which is unwritten and therefore frightening and towering and intimidating. But that's the pain of transformation. It's the slow, brutal, unforgiving friction of making change rather than remaining comfortable and complacent, even in grief. As Depeche Mode sing, just give me a pain that I'm used to. New pain might as well double our anguish because of its unfamiliarity. Grief, as devastating and pervasive as it is, at least becomes predictable, a reliably horrible companion. Transformation and change, by definition, are usually anything but. An implicit question may be the question that the invitation presents to us then, a question that will grow increasingly relevant and urgent is, will will remain static in the familiar but alienating comfort of grief or will he step into the discomfort of trust? A nice thing about this movie is that it encourages the necessity of grief. It encourages the importance of boundaries. As a result, it ultimately believes in our emotional instincts and our emotional health over social obligation. Refreshingly, it gives audiences the space to feel what Will feels. 
I'll likely be saying this in every episode, but it's hard for me to overstate because it might be the biggest reason I've connected with this movie the way I have. Seeing Will act truthfully when he's expected to be all smiles, when he's surrounded by all smiles essentially, is so deeply cathartic. I would guess that many of us have traveled to social situations when we don't want to because we hope that the atmosphere and people will change our internal state. I've definitely been rewarded with that outcome at times, but maybe just as often I have felt like Will, barely holding it together on the inside and having to expend even more energy into pretending that that's not the case around strangers, acquaintances, friends, and family members. So to see someone on screen being himself for better or worse, though thankfully not being actively mean or cruel, is a surprisingly powerful release. I'm curious how the invitation will age given how social behaviors are so fickle and can change so quickly. For example, the film hardly touches on the advent of smartphones and social media, but it doesn't need to. For as long as people are dying and there are people alive to feel those absences, we'll be exploring grief and the way it bleeds into our various communities. something how has he been handling things he can be self-destructive with this quote from eden we get a direct sense of will's unsavory instincts from someone who knew him well maybe better than anyone ironic as it might be coming from eden who tried to kill herself she's certainly not inaccurate or wrong or lying strikingly her private moment with kira reveals will to be more dangerous than he already was. As a quick refresher, we know Will is dangerous because he's capable of strong violence. You may remember him killing the coyote at the film's start without hesitating. We also know that he's unconcerned with politeness or manners, like when he called out David for locking the front door of the house. Now we know from his ex-wife that he can be self-destructive. We don't have specifics, but again, those are strong words coming from someone who we know shares that inclination. We can safely say that all these characteristics of Will's are a potent mix, especially during an evening dominated by caring but estranged friends and intensified by the two eccentric party crashers. We're at a rather critical point in the story where there are all these sensitive, disparate, but linked characters in play. The principal cast has now been entirely introduced And through the concise economy of the script, we have a small but meaningful sense of everyone's personality. Now it's like they've all been tossed into the air and we're waiting nervously for them to be dragged down by gravity. Will they be caught? Will they have their fall broken? Will they be shattered irreparably? Perhaps most urgently, what will they do to each other on the way down in the moment of free fall? An Invitation to the Invitation is written, produced, and hosted by me, Jim Panola. Original score is by John Panola. Follow us on Twitter at an invitation, no underscores, and follow us on Instagram at invitation to invitation. That's invitation, the number two, invitation with no underscores. Likewise, email us at invitation to invitation at gmail.com with questions and comments. Special thanks to the filmmakers and to the Panola family for their support. 
please spread the word if you enjoyed this episode, and we'll see you next time.